politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and disenfranchised citizens to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house midweek Wednesday, September 30th, the last day of the third quarter of this year, which cannot end soon enough in my book, although God knows what uh, 2021 has in store for us. So everyone's asking, all right, Daniel, what do you think of the debates? And my answer is, well, what debate? (laughs) There was no debate. Um, I both loved it and hated it. I mean, at the same time. Uh, In many respects, it's a reflection of this country. It's a reflection of the frustration so many of us independent conservatives have had with the last number of years where... On the one hand, President Trump by far is the only Republican that on some level indulges our talking points intellectually, will fight for us sometimes. But then, you know, he just kind of like drags it away. He either adopts a liberal policy at the same time, contradicts himself, or just becomes his own worst enemy and, and steps on his advantage. Now, I'm not here to tell you that I think the debate necessarily will wind up hurting his poll numbers. We'll see. I don't necessarily think so. But what I do think is that he had a lot of opportunities that he stepped on himself, and he could have pressed an advantage that was given to him. And look, if you're someone who thinks he's way ahead, that's one thing. I I don't think that. I do think that he is at least somewhat behind at this point. And I think he needed to take advantage of the openings that he had last night. And I just don't think he took them. I think in some cases he started to. But the problem is his antics overtook it. I get it. We hate Biden. I get it. We hate what he has to say. I get it. Biden would call him a liar. But then Trump just wouldn't stop talking. It wasn't just the typical talking over him. It was kind of like when we didn't like what Al Gore was doing to Bush in 20 and 2000. This was that times 10. And my biggest takeaway from all of this is that Trump was never cornered on an issue. Biden was cornered on almost every issue. Number one, because he's not coherent and fluid enough to talk about it. And number two, because he's caught between his party being so radical And he has to have their support. But on the other hand, he can't tell the American people where he really stands and where he's really headed on those issues. He was in the process of hanging himself. And I would have just pressed him very strongly. But don't talk over him in a way that people can't hear him hang himself. But again, this is kind of the frustration that we've had. Our issues aren't on the ballot because it winds up being Trump's personality on the ballot. And rather than Trump accentuate the radicalism of Biden, and that would require allowing Biden to talk, certainly not being silent all the time, but using his time to draw bold contrast and ask him pointed questions, which Trump did a good job of, but then he wouldn't let him answer. And Biden's answer was foolish and contradictory. Biden ran away from lockdowns. He ran away from defunding the police. He ran away from Antifa. He ran away from the Green New Deal. And he ran away from packing the courts. He literally couldn't talk about a single one of his party's issues. But that's going to be lost. Because Trump once again made his personality the issue. I know a lot of you are going to be upset with me saying that. And look, I enjoyed it too. To me, I'd like to have an intellectual debate, but we don't have that. We don't have a country deserving of it, that cares about it, that has the long-form discussion that we have on this program and all my writings. I'm not much of a, oh, you're a duty head, you're the liar, no, you're the liar, talking over each other type of guy. I'd rather have a real Lincoln-Douglas debate. But you know what? It's a reflection of our country. So yeah, I kind of enjoyed some of Trump's one-liners and you know his his comments there because hey, at least he's fighting. So I have those mixed emotions that maybe some of you perhaps have as well. 
But that was my biggest takeaway. It started out with the courts. Notice how Biden couldn't talk about liberal judges. Couldn't talk about the Constitution. Couldn't even talk about their plan to pack the courts. He, Chris, Chris Wallace asked him point blank. He wouldn't answer. It's the, old, the best he could do is just like a process thing. Oh, I think Trump should wait till the election. And then Trump did that very well. Look, you know, it's a four-year term. It's not a three-year term. But that's the point. The point is, the majority of the country hates Trump's personality. You and many in this audience might like it, but that is the reality. At the same time, the reality is that the Democrat Party is way to the left of where the average voter is. So the strategy for the for Trump's reelection needs to be tamping down and deflecting from his weakness with the voters at least and work to highlight and accentuate the weakness of Biden. And to me I think the radicalism is a bigger weakness than his incoherence. But had he let him talk, you would have seen both on display. He, he, you could tell he had trouble formulating his thoughts, and Trump often bailed him out just by talking over him. Yes, I could find some criticisms of Chris Wallace, and I really don't like him in particular. But I, I don't agree with my colleagues on that, that they think he fundamentally messed up the debate. I mean... You know, they agreed on certain rules. He tries to enforce it. The reality is it was Trump 90% of the time who was doing the talking over. And it's not like Wallace didn't ask him some pointed questions. Now, it's fine for Trump to jump in after Biden talking for maybe 40 seconds or so and questioning him on that, on that stuff. And I like that. That's a good debate. But then keep cornering him. Let him talk a little bit and corner him. Corner him. But he just totally would talk over him, Hunter Biden. And, and then Trump would like throw in these one-liners that you had to know what's going on politically to understand what Trump was saying. You guys would get it, but the voters that we need wouldn't necessarily get it. So you have to let Biden hang himself and then come in and draw that sharp contrast. There's nowhere I saw this more evident than with lockdowns. I was shocked that Biden ran away from the lockdowns and actually a couple of times almost went after Trump for the for the shutdown. He said, you shut down your economy. I mean, that is the number one position of the Democrat Party now is to shut down schools, shut down businesses. Trump started talking about that, but he could have hung him with this. Take a listen to this question from Chris Wallace and Biden's answer. When it comes to how the virus has been handled so far, the two of you have taken very different approaches, and this is going to affect how the virus is handled going forward by whichever of you ends up becoming the next president. I want to quickly go through several of those. Reopenings. Vice President Biden, you have been much more reluctant than President Trump about reopening the economy and schools. Why, sir? Because he doesn't have a plan. If I were running, I'd know how, what the plan is. You've got to provide these businesses the ability to have the money to be able to reopen with the PPE as well. As notice, guys, notice how Biden didn't say, yeah, you know, this is very dangerous. Everyone's going to die from this. And therefore, businesses and schools need to be shut. Kids do die from this, or it is a threat to kids. No, he's like, we just, I mean, he gave the, the, the most insane answer. We need more PPE. I mean, say what you want about it, whether you agree with the masks or not, but there are so many cheap Chinese masks around, you find them literally littering the sidewalks now. That's just absurd. They're not opening because they don't have masks or money. They're not opening because the Democrat governors shut it down. And Biden, and, and to me, if I were an, an advisor to the president, the most important line of the night was when Biden said, I am the Democrat Party. It is my party now. Do you know how much you could saddle him with? You could saddle him with the most radical stuff that he... So on the one hand, he, he ran away from them on the, on the policing, on the law and order, the rioting, the lockdowns, 
Green New Deal, packing of the courts. But on the other hand, he's like, I am the Democrat Party. That's how you trap him. Trap him on the issues. You could be very Trumpy with it and and you know be in line with his personality. You don't have to reinvent him to into a traditional candidate to do that. But I couldn't believe it. He could not defend it. And Trump had a beautiful opportunity. Again, like I could find criticisms of Chris Wallace, and it could be that had Trump pursued what I would have done, Wallace would have stopped him and bailed out. Biden, and I know he did do that one time, I noticed, I forgot when, he did do that one time. But generally speaking, I just don't think blaming it on Wallace is accurate. There were plenty of opportunities based on those questions. He had this stupid segment about global warming. There's a lot you could do with that. But he could have totally nailed him. Later on, they talked about racial inequality and racial tensions. I first would have gotten up there and said, wait a minute. We're for all Americans. We're for the whole of the people. Let's stop dividing by race. But then I would have noted, if you want to talk about racial inequality, there is actually one governmental policy that naturally created racial inequality. And that would have been a time to slam him again with the school shutdowns and the business shutdowns. It is a statistical fact that blacks and Hispanics lost more jobs than whites did. And it's a fact that when you shut down the schools, the bottom line is, it's the people who are less educated and have less means that could get around that and educate their kids. Like I'm doing, like some of this audience are doing. He says, I'm for Scranton. You know, his whole line is, I'm for Scranton, Pennsylvania. The, <clears throat> the lockdown flies in the, the lockdown is an albatross across his neck. And then guys, imagine if you juxtapose the lockdowns to the, to the, um, the, the Antifa stuff. So you're going and criminalizing Americans. And then you go and allow the rioting to continue. He had no answer for that. He had to run away from it, but he had no answer. Instead, Trump goes and repeats the RNC line of attacking uh, Biden from the left. Oh, no, you went and voted for the 1994 crime bill. You're bad for the blacks. I mean, what? He could have said our entire message of how there are likely 2,000 excess black homicide fatalities this year as a result of the movement that Biden is championing and supporting and his party, as he said, is championing at every level. He could have talked about the mauling of motorists. And it's funny, like a lot of people were shocked when Biden, so when Wallace brought up the issue and he did ask, you know, Biden point blank about the rise in crime. He did ask him about it. But then he turned to Trump and asked him, well, you know, there are, so Trump's whole line is like, it's, it's, he, Trump makes everything about politics. Like it's the Democrat cities. Now that's true, but it's a philosophy. It's jailbreak. It's being weak on crime. And some Republicans are doing that too, including his white house. And Trump instead goes and backs the the jailbreak. So guess what? A lot of people expressed surprise when Chris Wallace brought up Fort Worth and Tulsa as examples of Republican-led cities that have a rise in crime. Now, to be fair, first of all, Tulsa technically does have a Democrat mayor now. But Oklahoma is all Republican state government. Fort Worth is a rhino government. And that's the point, because rhinos at the BS, the people like Jared Kushner are supporting the same policies that Chicago and New York and Portland are supporting. I did a whole article on this. It's not a surprise to this audience. Crime is going up in Oklahoma because the governor. Still, whatever his name is, Kevin Stitt. Forgetting the guy's name. <clears throat> he supports jailbreak. Every bit as emphatically. As as any liberal Democrat. So I'm not sure where we go from there. 
We need more MAGA, not Javanka. Again, he had some lines here and there. But, you know, he just didn't press them. And to me, the overarching point, and, and he had some good lines. I've done more in 47 months than you did in 47 years. But don't just say, like, don't agree to Biden. Like, oh, Biden, there's global warming. There's, there's inequality against blacks. There's this. There's, there's, there's coronavirus. Like, oh, yeah, you're right. But I'm more pro that than you are. I did a better job. Where were you addressing that? No, uproot the premise. You made it worse. You created the problem. But again, I mean, where where Trump did talk about the virus, he added in that stupid line of, oh, there would have been millions of people killed initially. But he did veer into, you could clearly tell that Scott Atlas has had an influence on him, which again is why personnel is so important. But But the biggest lesson from last night is that Biden is caught between a rock and a hard place. Biden has made this all about Trump not being presidential. He can't make it about an issue. The worst thing for Trump to do is to create a dynamic where the focus becomes more about his personality and not about Biden's inability to articulate his stance on the issues and the radicalism of where he's going to head. So that was my biggest takeaway. Biden literally opposed shutting down schools and businesses. That's a big deal. And look, it was pretty funny what Trump with the mask stuff. He was like, yeah, you wear a mask 200 feet away. Yeah, the reason why you don't have uh, uh, gatherings is because no one wants to show up. to." I mean, they, they were good lines. But then he should have followed up with, wait a minute, so now you're telling me all we have to do is wear a mask, so you're against the shutdown, just wear a mask. Uh, dude, that's what we've been doing for five months. I mean, again, the only places where people aren't wearing masks are in very remote areas that no matter what aren't going to be responsible for many of the cases. So, I mean, he could totally quarter, corner him on that. Again, each thing, Trump did indulge our position, but he didn't press his advantage. And when he tried to do it, he did it in a way that just was so personal and talking over him that, that the point was lost. I was shocked. I mean, given how far to the left Biden has moved, he really ran away when he's cornered publicly with an audience that's directly paying attention to what he's saying, he does not, I mean, he disowned all their positions. That is where it needs to be picked up from. So that's with that. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to talk about with the virus, the different trends that are going on. More and more I'm seeing that Simply speaking, this all stems from one issue, the God gap. People don't believe in God. They think that if there is any discomfort that's now focused on in the media, that there is something a human being can do about it. There's got to be something. The Dutch are now pushing masks because it's spreading there again. Well, I thought the lockdown worked. Oh, whoops, it didn't. They, everyone needs to grab onto something. In the third world countries, they're focused on treating it. Early use of hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, zinc, z pack That's the best you can do. And give a message of empowerment that, look, for most of you, it's not going to be a problem. Here's the signs to look for. But instead, the notion that you could stop the spread... It's, you're giving people a false sense of security. <clears throat> There's also an interesting article. The New York Times, I'm shocked, did almost a mea culpa. Vilified early over lax fire strategy. Sweden seems to have scourge controlled. 
Very interesting. Very interesting. So some of these stories I want to get to later if we have time. China's global lockdown propaganda campaign. How China might have spread not just the virus, but the lockdown. Because remember, who is going to come out better from this after everyone is pretty much just um, destroying their own economy and society? Guess who's going to swoop in and fill that vacuum? So you wonder, everyone's thinking, oh, did China cause the virus purposely? Well, I don't know, but what I do know is that they likely caused the lockdown by fooling people with how to deal with it. So that's another interesting thing we might get into if we have time. Now, rather than me going through some of the latest stories, I mentioned a couple of them on the virus. I want to bring in one of our favorite COVID data gurus, Kyle Lamb. He writes at rationalground.com. You got to check it out. Again, terrific information. Lots of good guys there. Kyle is one of them. Also follow his indispensable work on Twitter. Uh, Kyle Lamb, that's K-Y-L-A-M-B-8 on Twitter. Um, He has information in his account that is as good as any article that I write in full form. And you could just see it in a short terse Twitter threads. But today he will give it to us orally so we could hear the latest and greatest. Hey, Kyle, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, thank you, Daniel. And I will try to make this a little more pleasant to listen to than the presidential debate, which was just uh, a lot of talking over each other and very, very unpleasant to listen to. Well, I think that's what people like, a thoughtful discussion here. We always have a long form thoughtful discussion and... um Just real quick, just real briefly, I wasn't going to get into this, but now that you bring it up, we talked about in the first half of the show, the the debate from just the COVID issue alone, putting aside the antics and stuff like that. What's your takeaway from what you heard? It was a lack of clarity. Uh, Like we kind of know what what Donald Trump's position is. I I was a little annoyed at Trump's position because he's still pushing this. You know, we we saved uh, two million lives. You know, two people, two million people would have died had we not done what we did. And we know the science doesn't support him on that. We know his own advisors don't really believe that he's just, you know, saying it for political purposes, which I get this is politics and, you know, it's an election. He's going to say what he's going to say, but it's still annoying. But on the other side, you know, Joe Biden's out there. It's like, well, first he's saying, well, we'll have masks and and a national lockdown if he gets elected. And then he says, you know, we're going to try to help people get back up and running. It's like, okay, so are we not locking down? And then later he said, well, it's not safe to open back up. We got to stay locked down. It's like (laughs) he's giving mixed signals here. It's like it just it was just very strange. It's like I don't know what his position is. I know what Trump's position is and he's politicizing it. But I don't know what Biden's position is after this first debate. No, no, and that's uh, what I mentioned before, and I'm going to have an article on that today. I think that there's a tremendous opportunity to press that advantage on that where Biden now realizes that to support a lockdown is completely um, is just completely toxic. And the best he could say is just we need PPE, which is absurd because people have had it in spades for months. They all have it, much to our chagrin, and uh, they've been wearing it, and it spreads anyway. So it doesn't work. So that needs to be pushed out there. And that's really where I want to pick this up from, which is kind of the state of play as we head into the fall with the weather getting colder, the weather changing. Um, People naturally get more colds. Kids get more strep throat and flus as, you know, October and November come Where are we headed with the trajectory of the virus? So I divide up this discussion into two halves. There's the severity of the virus, what it is and what it isn't. And there's our ability to do anything about it from a stopping the spread standpoint. I think there's a lot we can do from a clinical standpoint. And, you know, obviously hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, fortifying the body. But I... I speak with a lot of confidence in a lot of issues. I don't have a lot of gray in me. When it comes to our ability to stop it, to me, I'm, I'm black and white. The virus does what the virus does. But now, that in itself, what exactly the virus will do, that is more murky. I mean, that's kind of the point. Now, we were pretty confident that 
when you hit about 20, maybe 25% in some places of seroprevalence, it basically it doesn't mean it's eradicated, but basically it's going to you know slow down to a trickle because if you add those that have antibodies to those who got it without antibodies and those that have inherent cross immunity, you pretty much get close to herd immunity threshold, not an eradication threshold, but a breaking of the back threshold. So we saw it really hit the Northeast and then, you know, it just stopped. And then we're like, hey, well, you know, maybe this is it. Well, no, it, it went through the South. All right, well, they didn't really have much to begin with, so now it has saturation. Then the, the remaining area was really the Great Plains, the mountain states, Wyoming. Like, you know, they didn't get much. So it makes sense that place like that, Wisconsin also barely had anything. It is spreading more there. But there are some signs where I live in central Maryland where it seems like it's spreading a little bit more. When I say spreading, I don't mean just the BS case-demic that we've been talking about, which is really the majority of it. But there are, you know, a couple more hospitalizations here and there. Even New York and New Jersey are seeing that a little bit more. What are you seeing and where is this headed? Well, I, I think it's important. You you hit on a couple really important points. First of all, the herd immunity threshold. Well, let's just say for, for argument's sake and for you know, our discussion, that herd immunity does exist at somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 25%. As you said, it doesn't mean when we hit that level that it's going to completely eradicate it. Okay. Think of it like this. If, if the, the immunity threshold is 25%, when it hits 25%, all that really means is that's when it really starts, starts to burn out a little bit and starts to decline because large groups of people, if you are still one of the persons that are out going to your job on an everyday basis, most of the people have either had it or they're immune. So it's going to, have a harder time finding people to latch onto, right? And that's that's where the spread starts to go down. But it doesn't mean it's going to completely stop dead in its tracks. You might go 10 different days going to your daily routine before running into somebody that's still vulnerable to it. And that's where it might spread. So it's still going to find people to spread to. It just has a harder time once it reaches that point because there are fewer and fewer people out there that could get the virus. And I think that's where we're at in a lot of portions of the country. We're there in the Northeast. We're there all across the Sun Belt in the you know southern portion of the country. We're not there yet in some of the Midwest, especially upper Midwest states. And that's where we're seeing, I think, authentic spread in the Dakotas, in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Montana. Those places are, are areas that we know have not hit the herd immunity threshold, if that's what it, it, we think it is. And so that's why we're seeing spread there. And the other point that I think you mentioned was, you know, we have to also consider that when there is real spread and and when we test more and we find more positive cases, it's going to impact hospitalizations and deaths, regardless of whether it's a real spread or yeah. real rise or not. If we find more cases, we're going to find more hospitalizations. It doesn't necessarily mean it's legitimately more illness, but we're going to find more hospitalizations. And and right now we, we saw this past week in some places, like you said, there was a small uptick in hospitalizations. It's not much. It's, it's really minor, but we we're still waiting to find out is that a real uptick or is that just a product of hey we just went out and tested over a million people for like four five six straight days so naturally we found more cases and so we're going to find more hospitalizations as well so that's that's kind of where we're we're in a wait uh, wait and see pattern there right now with that no and and I think it's a similar thing you're seeing in Sweden you know, our main thesis is that the cost of the panic, the lockdown and also the panic inducing policies only destroy, they don't help. It's not that we have a solution that somehow eradicates the virus. No, our point is exactly that. We don't have control over it. Right. You could only add to the God-made luggage, man-made luggage, and man-made problems, but it will do what it does. Now, so that's the thing. It's not that even Sweden that we felt could never have even a small resurgence in any part of the country, anywhere, of cases. Um, and then obviously from that will be a few hospitalizations and deaths. It's that 
they went through the overwhelming bulk of the epidemic without having damaged their country with all the other stuff, and they have a better result than we do here, and they're much farther along the herd immunity threshold. But, you know, so, I mean, because there is talk about finally, finally, cases are going up very slightly, again, much less relative to the rest of Europe. Um, So do you have any observations from the data in Europe that corroborate with what we're seeing here in the U.S.? Yeah, and Europe is interesting because in, in Sweden, and per, pe, pe, just you know, so people know, cases never stopped in Sweden, and they did go up a little bit, like we saw, it to like like you said um, in another conversation we had, um, like what three hundred four three hundred forty five cases were found, and that's a little bit of an increase from what they had, but just so people understand, we're out here touting Sweden as a success. The cases never stopped in Sweden. But they've just been kind of like, you know, slowly going along and we haven't had an issue with it. And the deaths have almost completely stopped. I mean, they're averaging like less than what a death a day, I think, in the past 14 days, 30, 21 days, something like that. So Sweden is still seeing cases that never stopped. But most of the vulnerable people appear appear to have already died and they're not seeing any new deaths. And that's really what we're seeing with the rest of Europe. The only difference being in the rest of Europe, cases have gone up a lot in some places. The deaths have not gone up much, but they are still seeing a legitimate uh, rise in deaths in some of the places that haven't reached that that threshold. I think that's the difference between Sweden and Europe, is that they're all seeing some more cases, some more than others, but it really comes down to how many deaths are trailing behind the cases. And you know, some places are very, very minimal, like Spain, uh, cases have shot up in Spain. I think they, they've seen like 20,000, 30,000 new cases in the past several weeks. But over the course of the last two months, since the cases started going up, uh, like they're seeing a case fatality rate of like 0.4% or 0.5%. It's really, really low. And that's been the case for much of Europe, which is under uh, pretty much a 1% case fatality rate right now in this. If you want to call it a second wave, then we'll call it that. And so I think that's really what set sets Europe aside at the moment. So in talking about waves, everyone's talking about the cold weather, looking towards the winter, and it naturally sows a lot of panic because naturally people think the virus is going to get worse, um, even though it really just wound up staying around the whole time. But, you know, there's always this understanding respiratory viruses uh, are thought to be worse, generally speaking, for a lot of them in the summer. And then they're pushing this notion that, oh my gosh, we're going to have this twindemic. If you guys haven't seen it, Google the word twindemic. It's the new word. So they're basically saying, well, oh my gosh, you're going to go tether the flu to COVID and we're going to have, it's kind of like, you know, fentanyl and meth, like a speedball or something. You, know, you put the two together, it's going to be really bad. So as we've noted, it's kind of funny that, you know, in their mind, comparing this to the flu is like comparing, uh, is like being a Holocaust denier but then they themselves are comparing it. Well, I mean, according to what they're saying, COVID is 50 million times worse than the flu. So it's like saying, you know, you're going to have stage four cancer with a paper cut and the two together will create the perfect storm. It doesn't make any sense. So finally, they're actually discovering, yeah, you know, the hospitals, the ERs really do fill up during most flu seasons, some more than others and in some areas more than others. And we deal with it all the time. Outside of healthcare settings, no one even knows about it. No one cares about it. Doesn't disrupt our lives, and it's kind of similar to what we saw in the hard hit areas. You know, maybe with the exception of New York City, was you know maybe exceptional in some ways. It, again, it wasn't overrun, um, but where it got stressful. Uh, but you know, it, anywhere else, it wasn't more than what we saw in 2018. But you have work out that nobody has done. It's on your Twitter. And you guys can go back and see it. I want you to give and take as much time as you need to give a presentation on why you think that you cannot fundamentally have strong COVID and a strong flu together. You can't have a twindemic, the evidence that we're not going to see it, and also the implications about excess deaths over a window of three to five years of who dies from respiratory viruses and how you can't double dip in the panic by saying, oh my gosh, we have all these deaths. And then on top of that, now we have COVID. Oh my gosh, so many more people are going to die. 
I'm kind of really proud of myself. I'm going to pat myself on the back <laughs> here before I go into this because Daniel, you remember, cause I, I said on this very show a couple months ago, I pointed out, I was one of the first ones to point out the flu had disappeared in the Southern hemisphere. And I wasn't so into it when you said it at the time, yeah. like it didn't like strike me as a big deal. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned this and I even, and I, I theorized that, that this was a, this was par- partially, I think due to COVID, like just having some predominant, uh, some predominance theory as to why the flu wasn't around because of the virus being around. And, you know, I also mentioned, I think uh, like maybe the next time I was on that I knew that the governors and some of these leaders and political and, and public health experts were going to use the lack of the virus as uh, as a reason why they're going to continue the mitigation efforts on us. And sure enough, lo and behold, the CDC actually came out with an acknowledgement that, yeah, by the <laughs> way, the flu disappeared in the Southern Hemisphere. OK, you already heard that if you listen to the conservative review review podcast, you knew that. And then. Oh, by the way, yeah, we're we're taking credit for the mitigation. It was the mask and the lockdowns and all of that. That is the reason why the flu disappeared. And of course, you know, me knowing this was coming because I had been calling it, um, I'm like, all right, so I know this is not the case. So what I needed to do was I needed to show how mask and lockdowns, especially and mitigation as a whole, but mask and lockdowns more specifically, I had to show why and how that could not have been stopped by um, how the how the flu disappearing could have not been stopped by those things. So what I did is I went back to the United States back in February and March when this all started, and I looked at this flu season compared to a normal flu season, and I compared the trends by week, by calendar week, of percent of positive flu tests as well as hospitalizations confirmed for the flu. And I compared this year to the last three years. And the last three years were very, very predictable from year to year. From from weeks uh, 7 to 17, there was a very stable, slow trend. You know, we're not denying that this was towards the end of a normal flu season, but there was a very predictable and stable trend downward to about week 17 and then beyond is when it really starts to, to taper off. So, so can you paint that picture for our audience just because my brain doesn't think in terms of week numbers. I mean, that's CDC numbers. So what is that like mid yeah, so, to late February to April? So week, week seven would be basically mid-February. Week 10 would be uh, generally around the first or second week of March. Uh, actually week 10 would be the, the very start of March week 12, by the way, is when the first lockdowns, of the United States started, that yep. was, end of I think March 18th is when the first ones went in play. March 15th is when the first ones went to play. And those were Alaska, Colorado, and California. And then week 13, 25 different States started their lockdowns. So really it was week 13 when all the lockdowns started in mid March. And mm. of course we know examining these uh, this this data that it never shows up right away right it's going to take uh, at least a week or two before you start to see any effect that lockdowns or mask or anything that could potentially have an effect it's going to take a couple weeks before we see it in the data so really we should not have seen lockdowns have any impact on the flu at least until week 15 or 16 and mask, remember, everybody was telling us back in March, hey, don't wear the mask. They don't work. And we need them for health care workers. Yep. So we know it wasn't very- until late April, May that it became, a, you know, yeah. a bigger thing. And then by the end of May, June, it became a religion. Right. So we know that mask had nothing to do with it back in March. And you could argue, well, lockdowns. But like I said, lockdowns did not even start until week 13. They wouldn't have shown an impact until at least week 14, week 15 at the very earliest and probably later than that. But what I found then is looking at week 17 was when the first drop happened a little bit more than usual in the previous three years. And then weeks eight, nine and 10, especially they started going way down. And Wait, we're eight, to- nine and 10. So that's late February, early March. Right. 
And, and I know there were the, the, the knee jerk reaction here that I got from some people as well. Social distancing is what did it. Well, it, they weren't really recommending social distancing in about a week or two before the lockdown started. And even at that point, if you remember it, it's still like, well, most people weren't taking it seriously. Cause I don't know about you, but when I went to a grocery store, everybody was still like all around in the grocery store and there was really not much social distancing. And we were still having full, full blown, uh, sports events until March 14th, I think is when the NBA got canceled. We were still having, you know, concerts for another week yep. after that. You know, so we're talking about 20, 30,000 people being in confined spaces at a time. So social distancing really wasn't a thing yet. You know, they, I think it wasn't until the lockdown started. It's like, all yeah. right, some people are like, we well, better take this, this seriously. Um, not to say that there wasn't anybody taking it seriously, but you know what I mean? <laughs> because, because Kyle, what I asked you to do this, I mean, you were, you were already doing it before, but I said to you, I said, wait a minute. I said, wait a minute. We're trying to use the Southern hemisphere as a control study to say, look, I mean, we, we already had a hemisphere that had gone through flu season with COVID and you see, you didn't have the two together. And in fact, it seems like COVID boxed out the existence of the flu almost completely in some places. The few places you see it was almost a seesaw where they really didn't have COVID. They had the flu where they had um, COVID. They didn't have the flu. But then I said to you, wait, wait a minute. What about the Northern Hemisphere? This thing should have clipped the end of the second half of the Northern Hemisphere's flu season because I remembered something that bothered me. I had in my mind, I didn't study this carefully until March. You know, the whole flu and CDC and excess deaths and how many flu deaths and pneumonia deaths we had. I didn't know from any of that. No one did. I mean, very few people examined that. So I just had like news stories in my mind. And I, I had remembered that they were really talking about it being a tough flu season. So I actually thought until fairly late into the process that that this had been a tough flu season. There's a CNN article from uh, January talking about the number of kids that were in ICUs. It's kind of funny. Um, Without any underlying conditions, there was in your home state of Ohio, you guys could Google around, you'll see Ohio... Um, bad flu season, you know, not, not 2018. That was certainly bad, but, but this year, but then it like, but, but then the numbers didn't bear that out. The numbers show low level of deaths. So then, and then that's where it hit me. Maybe this started out in November, December into January, a little bit as tough, but when COVID took root, which wasn't in March, it was more like January. Now we have evidence that there, you know, it could have started with November, December. And I think that's true, but it wasn't, I don't, I don't think we're going to say it was prevalent, you know, enough to take over the flu, but I think certainly February already was percolating a lot that it could take over the flu. So is that what you're essentially saying that, because a lot of people thought that really it was, it was bull crap that they were counting the flu as COVID. But you're saying no, it was it was really COVID came earlier and it just dropped off the flu. And this is and this is important, too, because uh, another response that I got to this when I came out with with the study was, well, people said, well, they stopped testing for the flu. And actually, it was the opposite. If you look at the numbers, they actually tested more. And the reason being is because early on when we did not have COVID testing, they were using flu testing to rule out COVID because mm. if you came in with symptoms, they were saying, well, let's see if you have the flu first because doctors shockingly you know, thought that, hey, if you have the flu, you probably don't have COVID because the, they, they don't think that the peop- that people are likely to have both at the same time, which goes a little bit to my predominance theory. So they were actually testing people for the flu to rule out not having COVID. And uh, it really shows in the numbers too, because you see it was kind of a normal flu season going right along until about February. And then all of a sudden by mid February, it just dropped off. Like yep, it died. By, yeah, it died by week 10. The, the rate of positive flu tests were already cut in half from the previous three seasons. And so, and I ran correlation on this by the way, and it was a 0.83 correlation from estimated number of COVID-19 infections using COVID-19-projections.com. He, Yu Yang Gu, by the way, does great work. If you want number of infections by state or or country, go to COVID-19-projections.com because he does a great uh, great estimate on that. Everybody believes he's one of the best out there. So I use his weekly estimates of infections, and I 
uh, correlated it against the uh, percent positive of flu tests. And I got a 0.83 correlation between the two, which is uh, almost a 0.7 R squared. It really, really strong relationship. And I tested the same calendar weeks of the uh, previous three flu seasons against the same weekly flu estimates just to show that they did in fact go down at a much steeper pace because of COVID-19. And when I did that, I got under a 0.4 correlation for all the other three, three flu seasons, which showed a natural relationship of going down, but obviously not nearly as strong as the actual relationship showed for this year. So there is a really strong relationship between the infections of COVID going up and when the flu hospitalizations and uh, positive flu tests going down. And like I said, here's, here's the conundrum, Daniel. If you still want to say, well, it was social distancing that did this, right? Washing your hands and keeping a distance yeah. from people. Mind you, somehow it doesn't help block COVID, but it right. helps block the flu. Right. <laughs> Let, let's just, let, let's say, okay, well, that was the reason for this. Well, guess what you're saying? You're admitting it had no effect on stopping COVID-19 from, from spreading at that point, <laughs> but it stopped the flu and that's your excuse for why the flu never came about in the Southern hemisphere while COVID-19 was running, you know, <laughs> completely unchecked. So <laughs> there's a little bit of a contradiction there. And the other thing is, it's like, if that were true, if they really actually we believed- We needed to stop the flu. <laughs> right. If they really believed, hey, social distancing stopped the flu, even though who has said lockdowns have never worked, they've never seen any evidence of, of lockdowns working. But if they really just- dead in its tracks, stopped the flu season here in the United States about seven weeks early. Well, shouldn't that be front page news? Or shouldn't we be discussing that everywhere? Like, cause we just had a huge breakthrough. We stopped the flu without a vaccine. <laughs> we, we stopped it without masks. We stopped it without lockdowns, just a simple hygiene of washing your hands and social distancing killed off the flu. Right. And that's, that's what we found. It's it's just, but it's funny. We know that's not true, or they'd be trumpeting that everywhere, and it, w it really, truly would be a success story if that were the case. But they don't believe that, and so that's why they don't make a big deal about it. But I think this shows that conclusively, the flu got killed off stronger and quicker in the northern hemisphere, right when COVID showed up. Didn't show up in the southern hemisphere. And Daniel, what's interesting, we had a first example of a flu outbreak this year. It happened in Cambodia, of all places, a place that's just a little bit north of the equator. And they've had a really bad flu outbreak the last few weeks. Well, guess what? They only have 277 total cases in a country of uh, 10 million people. 277 COVID-19 confirmed cases in a country of 10 million. And they're the ones having the flu, break, flu outbreak. So, again, that goes to my theory that COVID-19, in places it's spreading, is suppressing the flu. But obviously in Cambodia, with only 277 cases, it's not spreading very much. And lo and behold, we have a flu outbreak. Wow. That, that is an unbelievable presentation. And again, you know, you're only going to hear it here. You're only going to see it. Uh, Kyle M was K-Y-L-A-M-B-8 on Twitter. It, it's funny because I hear a lot of doctors in my community, they're like, all of our got a flu shot, a flu flush, COVID is terrible. And it's like, you know, everyone's like, Oh, where do you get your medical degree from? But you see, folks, someone who does research and understands math and correlations and regressions and is able to do this stuff, you actually, I mean, you know a lot more than they do. And I doubt they even have these observations, that they even know it. And again, CDC is vouching for what you said. Now, they have their stupid reason for it, but you just debunked the reason to, oh, it helped all, it helped all the social distancing. And so... I, I want to take this to the final frontier with where that leaves us. So there's two very important implications. Number one, obviously, it's very unlikely that this uh, bomb conflation con convergence of the flu and COVID is is going to exist. Now, we might have a flu season, but it's not going to coexist with COVID rampaging at an equal level. You know, if, if you have a little bit of COVID, maybe you could have, could have a flu season. But you're not going to have the two of them strong together. But number two, I don't know if you fleshed this out so much, and I, you definitely know it, but I think it's implied from what you're saying. And that is that, yes, COVID on net 
is worse than most flu seasons, and it could be even worse than any flu season, but not that much more. Not that much more for most people. And you and when you tally the deaths, you have to look at the excess deaths and the net. Because what you're saying is, see, there's one thing if you have a flu and then a super flu. But if the super flu takes over the flu and you don't have that, then it might be on net a little worse, but it's not a bomb. It, so in terms of the excess deaths, isn't it true that it generally clears out the people who are slated to die that year from pneumonia-like things, maybe with a little bit of interest in certain areas with certain people, but you're not going to have double duty. So isn't it true, in fact, aside from your predominance theory, if we had COVID not just in the winter, but in the, in the spring and the summer and the fall, clearing out a vulnerable group of people, doesn't it likely mean that for a while, maybe another one to three years, we should have low flu deaths? Yes. And, you know, there, th- one of my biggest pet peeves is the, well, this isn't the flu people that are using research of excess deaths to compare it. And at least they're using data. I give them credit for that because some people don't even go to that length. (laughs) But you can't compare excess deaths of flu season to excess deaths of this. And the reason being is because the CDC, using your five-year averages and epidemic threshold, well, that's already baked in. When you have a flu season, flu deaths are already baked in. So if you look at, well, you know, 2019 had only you know, this number of excess deaths, it's like, okay, yes, but they're also being compared to a normal flu season, uh, like 2018, for instance, where all the deaths are already baked in. So of course you're not going to have excess from season to season because it's already normal. People die in flu season because of the flu and because of colds, and a lot of deaths are attributed as secondary causes because of the flu and cold season, right? You know, these uh, these cause heart attacks, shocking, right? It's not just COVID, but these things cause heart attacks. They cause renal failure. There's all sorts of attribution and, and comorbidities in, during flu season, and it's baked in. But what happens is a lot of people die during the season, and then the deaths go down for the rest of the summer, spring and summer, and then they eventually come up late in the year. But overall, more deaths happen early in the year during flu season than any other. And so what happened when the virus started? Well, it's coming off of flu season and it picked off the vulnerable during a time where if we compare it to previous seasons, not many people die because it's not flu season. But it picked off the vulnerable because of a light flu season, because it interrupted quickly. And then the rest of the year, what we're going to see theoretically is fewer people dying as the year goes on. And so if you only look at excess in the weeks that COVID started, it looks a lot worse than it actually is. And I know this because I went back and I took every single age one to 100 and I did an actuarial table from, uh, from the social security administration site. And I took the actuarial table and applied the probability of dying within one year to every single age up to a hundred. And I aggregated those predicted deaths based on the 2020 population. And then I cross-referenced them with what we are on pace to see as a number of deaths based on the probability. So like whatever should have been an expectation for the number of deaths in 2020 up through week 31, I allowed six weeks of lag. I took the CDC provisional death counts and I, I allowed six weeks for lag, you know, because reporting is still coming in. More deaths are coming in for the last six weeks, right? So I I figured six weeks was a good cutoff. So I took the first 31 weeks of 2020, and then I stretched it out, just extrapolated it to 52 weeks. And what I found is that we do have a a projected excess of about 160,000 people by the end of the year. But I also aggregated by age group matching the CDC deaths. And what I find then is that we are drastically overcounting 65 to 74, 75 to 84 and 85 plus. Those those actually the projected number of people dying are actually lower uh, than what is being counted as COVID. The projected excess, I should say, is actually lower than what's being counted as COVID. Like, for instance, 85, Daniel, 
is about one third. The projected excess by the end of the year is about only one third of what has actually been ruled COVID deaths. So if there's 25,000 excess deaths projected by the end of the year and 85,000 COVID deaths, 85 and over, what does that tell you? That tells you 50,000 people did not actually die from Didn't COVID. die from it. That, 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 that less than half. And we did this yesterday with Tennessee. You look, there's almost no excess death for 85 and above. Um, whereas the biggest excess death, we you know, the point we were making is in the 20s and 30s because of the drug overdose problem in Tennessee. And it's, you know, huge in Ohio. It's a huge in a lot of states. And that's where we're seeing this BS, because to me, if you look at a three year window, are we going to notice again? You'll notice a blip. We're, we're n- none of us are going to deny that there's nothing there. But in terms of the once in a millennium type of catastrophic p- p- panic that we are sowing, it doesn't see, you don't see that you don't. And that's why most people don't know so many tragedies like you did in 1918 In 1918. You couldn't miss it. The median age of death was it was 28. You couldn't miss it. You could not miss that in any chart. But here we're forgetting that if you look at any excess death chart you will see, or all-cause deaths, that it goes up every flu season. The flu season is one of the biggest seasonal factors, if not the biggest, um, in triggering deaths. And that's where a lot of people who so-called die of old age, that's kind of their time to go. And that's just one way that God does that. And that's why, to me, if you look at a three-year window, our buddy, um, what's his name? That Gato Malo guy with the funny Twitter handle, but his brilliant stuff on there. He put out this Cambridge study that that pegged a correlation between COVID deaths and an intensity ratio or scale of the last two flu seasons. And what was astounding is it was almost a perfect correlation. So what's the country? It was European, just European countries. They didn't look at anywhere else. The number one death country in Europe is Belgium. Okay, High, highest number of uh, COVID deaths per capita. It literally was the bottom of the scale of the COVID of, of the of the season. Sweden is somewhere in the middle, right, with COVID deaths. But as we've noted, they have a very liberal definition. And did they really die? They have more people who died over over 70 than than the US as a percentage. And you look at the excess deaths, they're not, they're unremarkable. You had a year five years ago that had more excess deaths. You look there, they are. They have a they they had a lower flu season, not as low as Belgium, but they had a lower flu season. You go to the under other end of the spectrum, and you have Romania, Slovenia, and Greece. Okay, Malta, Latvia, these countries, very few COVID deaths, very few COVID deaths. Poland, Greece is all the way at the under other end of the spectrum in terms of intensity of the flu season the last two years. I found that to be unbelievable. Yeah, it, it's really, really important. That's why even if we see a second wave, and again, I I think we're just going to continue seeing what we're seeing right now, which is what what's happening in the upper Midwest, for instance. I think that's what we're going to see as our second wave. I, I do not believe we will see a true second wave, not anything like we saw back in the spring, because the vulnerable have already been hit, and we're already seeing it's only taking out the people that were probably going to die later in the year or next year, the year after. We've already reached the vulnerable population. So I think we're just going to see the deaths just kind of string along. And look, as long as they keep testing the way they are, we're going to keep finding cases. And ergo, we're going to find hospitalizations and we're going to find deaths. They, like they have enough. I, I mentioned this on Twitter. This is kind of frightening, actually. If they keep testing a million people a day for the foreseeable future, then even if like two thirds of those positive tests are actually positive and then one third positive rate, They've got enough, uh, enough positive tests to churn out an average of about 450 to 500 deaths a day, regardless of whether they are legitimate or not. That's 450 to 500 deaths a day they can churn out as long as they keep testing a million people. And so <laughs> this is going to keep going for a while if they keep testing like this. And what scares me is that there's tremendous literature behind the concept of asymptomatic flu, right? I mean, there's nothing new under the sun just because people haven't heard of the term until this. And we obsessively and myopically focus on everything about this virus. But the principles of that we're seeing from this virus, it has its quirks like all of them do. 
but they're pretty similar to other coronaviruses and and really even flus and other rhinoviruses. Um, it was amazing. Like I um I saw literature on H. Covo C forty three, the most common or believed to be the most common coronavirus cold, and I saw some a stat that they estimate thirty percent are asymptomatic. So the point is, if you had a PCR testing regime to vet out every coronavirus cold and to vet out every um, flu, you could totally tag people as a flu patient if they subsequently get hospitalized for whatever reason, that's a, that's a flu hospitalization. And if they subsequently die, you know, 55,000 people die a week, let's say, during the flu season, what percentage of those people could test positive for the flu? Whether they have it symptomatically or even asymptomatically. Yep. You know, because I was always wondering, they, they, they talk about... You know, in the bad flu seasons, like, I don't know, 60, 70 million getting the flu, which we're probably approaching now with COVID. Um, and hopefully that will end it. But it makes you wonder why, you know, the flu is so contagious. Why don't 300 million people get it? I know. So could the answer be, I mean, that's essentially asymptomatic or, you know, where even I'm guilty of this. I talk about covid and coronaviruses as if they're so unique with the cross immunity t-cells and everything but the truth be told i mean it's a, the flus are very much like that as well i mean where Daniel, there's have you seen the have you seen the flu burden for this year have you seen what the cdc estimates the number of people that got the flu this year no 40 to 50 million who, who would have thought that right 40 to 50 million even on a light flu season 40 to 50 million they estimate got the flu this year where, where we have just proven it got cut off in the final yes. third. And and right now the estimates from COVID19projections.com has uh, about 53 million people having COVID-19. So they're right in line right now. The only difference is that we've tested in the last one year 1.5 million flu tests, whereas COVID-19 we are now over 115 million. Oh, my God. So what what you're saying, we now test in one day almost as much as we test in a whole year. Yes, we are now now about two-thirds. In one day, we are now about two-thirds of the total for the whole last 52 weeks of flu testing. Oh, my gosh. I mean, if I had one request from God to go back in a time machine and, like, be able to show people something, it would be if we could PCR test every stinking mouth and nose of every human being in that pandemic flu of 2018 that no one remembers. I would love to see how many people you'd get asymptomatically, how many hospitalizations you'd get, and yes, how many deaths you get. CDC has an official estimate that's lower, but then they say they believe it's up to 80,000 deaths. But if you were to have tested and coded and defined like we are doing now, I would love to see what that number would have been. I am convinced more than ever to, to kind of go along with what you just said. I'm convinced more, more than ever. If we tested every single hospitalization and death, like we're, we're doing now with COVID-19 for the flu. I, I don't want to say that the numbers of total deaths would be higher, but I think it would be very, very similar. I think COVID-19 would be a little higher. That's yes. My, no, no. My COVID-19 high. would be higher. But yeah, again, be higher, we're not but. talking about doing one order higher disruption than a flu season. We're right. talking about nuclear warfare. Like that has always been our contention. It's not that this isn't worse in a lot of areas, although not everywhere, um, than 2018. Um, and a couple hot spots that were really bad. But that it justifies this level versus what we do in a pandemic flu and that the notion that it even helps, that's where we disagree with this. Um, And it gives you a totally different perspective on this. It's not that there aren't people dying, but like you noted, what it shows is that a lot of them died of old age and, and it was total BS coding. Or if they did die, it wasn't a 72 year old, that had 15 more years left on him, usually. Um, it was one of those that kind of, you know, unfortunately die before life expectancy. They die under 80. They do die in their 70s. And look, I mean, I hear all the time, I, you know, I get get out, you know, on our uh, synagogue list. Um, hey, you know, this guy died. And I'm like, man, you know, he was only in his 60s. 
you know, it's very sad nowadays because, you know, you'd hope and expect people to live till, till 80 and um, but but people do die and <laughs> and they die younger sometimes, unfortunately, even nowadays. And we hear it all the time. And often it's unclear what got them. And there's no question there's a little bit more of that going on. And there's no question that God is challenging us with something. But what we have created in terms of a man-made plague with no rate of return on uh, on the God-made plague is just unforgivable. Um, folks, we are way out of time. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us again. Where can people find your work? Yep, you can follow me on Twitter at KYLAM8. Of course, you can follow rationalground.com, which we've got a big group of people, an army of people working on COVID-19 research. And also, you can check out my Patreon page, patreon.com slash beyondthepold, which is the name of my podcast. I've got all the links to the podcast there. And if you want to donate, you can. You don't have to. I make the the, the work free for the public, but you can donate if you'd like to. So uh, at KYLAM8 and patreon.com slash beyondthepold patreon.com beyond the fold podcast make sure you catch his podcast because folks you want the cutting edge information to combat your family friends neighbors pushing this garbage let me tell you you ain't finding it from establishment doctors <laughs> that that's that's just the reality um he was ahead of the curve on so much of this before cdc even put it out uh, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you, all of you guys, for listening and supporting this program. As always, email me, dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet, tweet me at our conservative on Facebook. Miniman Speak Easy and Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary are the two fan book pages. Until tomorrow, stay safe, stay armed, and God bless you all.